Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and each month I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today it's my great pleasure to be talking with James Limthold about his career, his writing most in particular, and some of his favorite coastal books in coastal areas. But before we start talking with James, I'd like to take a moment for our sponsors to tell you about what they're doing. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Find them at LJA.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So, James, I'm so glad you wanted to talk on Shorewords today. I've loved your book so far. As I told you, I, I'm, I finished two. I'm part of the way through the third. But I, I expect that several of our, read, our listeners haven't read all of your books yet. So could you introduce folks to your, your writing? And especially, how did you pick the name for your protagonist? Uh, great. Well, thank you so much for having me today, Leslie. I'm very excited to be here. Um, great questions. I guess, I don't know how deeply you want us to go back into history, but I, I think I should establish off the bat that I'm a practicing field ecologist, marine scientist who spends a lot of time out there in the world, um, actually conducting science all over the world. Very fortunate to do so with really interesting colleagues and great graduate students. And um, it was against that backdrop that I always thought, you know, if there was, it's a, it's a dream career. And if there was something else I could do, it would write a book. And um, so on the night, literally on the night I got tenure at the university, I started writing the first book. And um, it's been um, an interesting um, um, route since then. So um, as a scientist has been out there in the world and a lot of the time, um, has done applied work. So doing work that has overlap with management, including fisheries, you know, I've had some spirit, let's call them spirited encounters with folks out there in the world. And, um, you know, and a couple of times they've resulted in, you know, some fairly um, interesting physical challenges, threats as it were. And, you know, one of the things that's always, I've always found interesting is that, um, I think the majority of the world really expects scientists to cower in the presence of, you know, their aggression. And oftentimes that happens because nobody wants to get in a fight with a bunch of irritated people. But it always occurred to me that, well, you know, what happened, what would happen if the scientist uh, didn't take a back step back? And so I kind of imagined a scenario where you'd have this team of scientists out there in the world doing science. And by virtue of the locations where they're doing the science and just a little bit of bad luck, they found themselves, they find themselves in close proximity to some bad actors. And when push comes to shove, this group of folk doesn't always back down and, you know, zaniness ensues. So I think 
um, that's kind of the, the the broader thing. My my protagonists don't solve climate change. They don't have the equa- the equation to solve climate change, or the algorithm that's going to solve global overfishing. They're doing science in the field, and they're forced to deal with bad actors. And sometimes these people are very bad, as you know, having read the first couple books. And um, so that's the that's the main setup. And um, I think the name of my protagonist derives from an actual family name. Uh, my name Lindholm is Swedish, but my mom's side of the family is Irish and Scottish. And the black family line comes deep in that history. And so I, I, my daughter had done a long genealogical project in middle school. And um, we learned a lot about the relatives on that side of the family and it just seemed appropriate. So uh, Chris Black was born of that. I see. Well, it's a great protagonist name. It's got that harsh kind of "don't mess with me." I'm Chris Black feel to it. It's it's not the suave. I'm James Bond, but you know that you're dealing with somebody who's who's fairly assertive and ready to go to action when needed. And who do you feel is your main audience for these books? Uh, great question. And you know, I'm. Um unapologetic about identifying my audience as, as basically the, myself in many ways. You know, I'm looking to beach readers, people who read on airplanes, people who are tired at the end of the day and read late at night and oftentimes don't have the ambition to grind through lots of very long chapters. So I've kind of set these up to be quick, fun reads that hopefully um, – do provide you some insight into the scientific process, give you some fun character development, introduce you to some fun locations. But the whole idea is to really, um, you know, provide the reader with a fun experience. And I, you know, if, if, if I saw a book in the hand of somebody sitting on the beach, that would make me very happy. Yes, I'm sure it would. I'm sure you have, or will soon, for sure. I kind of have a shorthand way of thinking about the three books um, to me, Into the Canyon Deep is about ocean dumping. And I was wondering how you reacted to the finds recently of all of the DDT that has been discovered uh, down off the coast of Southern California. And I believe your book was before that, but it certainly must have resonated with you in terms of just that um, flagrant abuse of the coast and the ocean water area. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, I was familiar with incidents of dumping prior to writing it, uh, writing the first book, but it occurred to me that, you know, the, the, the Canyon is literally like, is a little less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And, um, we, we, we spent, yeah, it's, it's extremely fortunate. It is the closest I've ever lived to a study site and it's a, it's an extraordinary place to live. It's a really special place, but, you know, there are bad actors around and there's dumping going on around. And, and you know, within a month of publishing the, the first book, there was a, a, a new story about a, a illegal dumping on land. And then later, more recently, we heard about the dumping down south, which, you know, we know the DDT situation has been a problem in Southern California for a long time. So it was um, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you know, having trying to keep my fiction somewhat grounded in reality, it was both confirming and also very frustrating to see, you know, cases like that arise. 
Um, you know, I would do a lot of my work on the seafloor where we encounter stuff that's been left behind, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. And, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of us, there's a lot of us in California. And so consequently that results in a lot of stuff on the seafloor and, um, it's tough to watch. It's, I mean, it's tough to watch for sure when it's there for any reason, but it seems like when it's an intentional thing, as opposed to, um, people not recognizing that what they throw in the storm drains goes out to the ocean, people accidentally having something fly out the window of their car that then ends up on the beach and out in the ocean. That's very different from some of the intentional dumping. And as I think we all know, some of that intentional dumping has been done by our government. We've got some things that were left over from World War II where the expedient way of, of getting rid of materials was to put it in the ocean. So um, part of what your the end of your book has, I believe, or maybe it's the start of the second book, is the idea that after all of this has been discovered and identified, well, you go out and clean it up. But have you been involved with any cleanup efforts? There was sort of a PS to the book, but it's really the biggest difficulty we see is that um, dropping something off the side of a boat's not very hard to do. Getting it back up again is the hard part. Yeah, you beat me to the punch there. I was going to say that I think initially we clearly are dealing with the legacy of the kind of formal um, legal dumping that you're describing that went on for you know decades or more. Um, and we encounter that kind of stuff out there, you know, desks and office chairs and things that have just been dumped offshore because that was the place to dump it. Um, the more recent stuff that you're talking about, you know, if you catch me on a positive day, I'd say that, you know, people are more attuned to Mylar balloon, the challenges presented by Mylar balloons or helium balloons in general. And there are, you know, certainly in the neighborhoods where I live, which is a bubble, I understand, you know, this, the, the, the drains are all labeled and everybody knows that everything's flowing to the ocean. Doesn't mean it's going to, problem's going to go away, but I think relative to my youth, I think a lot more people are, are attuned to these things than they were then. But then, you know, you have, so I live in Carmel, immediately adjacent to the Pebble Beach um, golf course. And I don't know if you know, but about a year and a half ago, there was a discovery of, you know, thousands of golf balls offshore of that not, shouldn't surprise anybody, but somebody actually found them. And, uh, you know, that's not a good thing either. And uh, it, I think it points to, you know, a couple of golf balls going in the water is one thing, but when you've got a course like that being played by people all around the world, year round, daily, the volume is going to get to a point where anything that in and of itself wouldn't be a big problem, you know, like a single golf ball, now you've got thousands of them. You've got a different situation to deal with. Yeah, I think it was a, a, a high school girl who discovered that with her fa- family that she would go out snorkeling and and then started to pick them all up as a as a great cleanup effort on our own. But I've heard about golf courses now that will have golf balls that are made out of, of fish food. And they sell them at like for a dollar or a quarter or something like that. So that when golfers finish their round and feel like they need to do their victory, hit a golf ball into the ocean, they can hit something that's going to turn into something that's possibly positive. I don't know if that's caught on here. I think it was in 
Scotland they were doing it. Home of home of the golf balls and golfing. But yeah, every little thing that we do has suddenly huge repercussions when so many people are, are engaged in that same activity. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we've been doing over the years, I've had the good fortune to work with a couple different groups focused on science communication efforts. And, um, and we've taught a graduate seminar at the university on science communication. And one of the things that the challenges that we face and your question in this line of inquiry brings it to the fore, um, you know, most of these problems are so overwhelming that people just kind of are paralyzed to think about them. And, you know, what, what, what can they do to stop it? How can they do What can they do to help? It's all overwhelming. And so I think I've seen some amazing examples of communication where people are simultaneously able to contextualize the bigger problem so that it's, it's tractable, but then and also talk about little ways that individuals can take steps to help um, curtail things like your carbon footprint or the amount of waste you use and the type of waste you use and where that waste ends up. So I think there are lots of, and you know, I hadn't heard about the fish food golf balls. That's an interesting idea. Um, and it sounds like, you know, that's another reason for optimism that there, there are advancements in thinking and, and, you know, hopefully that will help us. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm confident that at least in some cases it will. Well, I'm glad I got caught you on an optimistic day. And I think also your idea of living in a bubble, your bubble is getting bigger. It's bigger than it was when you were younger. And I think your kids and the next generation are going to just make that bubble expand larger and larger. So I think the many good things that are going on are going to be replicated other places. That's my optimistic day scenario, at least. Yeah, I agree with you completely. You know, we spend a great deal of time at the university, particularly in the research diving program, um, talking about how to adjust to the new expectations, the new way of thinking of this newer generation, of which you know my daughter is a, is a, is a member. They have, you know, it's 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 a really interesting societal experiment from my perspective. They approach things very differently than I did at their at their age. Um, and that's, you know, fine. And I'm sure each generation does that. But this one, one of the things that I think um, it's been my experience to date is that they are um, very supportive of each other and uh, uh, across the board and are really interested in, in solving some problems. So I think maybe there is reason to be hope, hopeful there, as you point out. I want to switch this a little bit to talk about protected areas which also is sort of a, a new concept from the, over the past 50 years or so, at least for the ocean areas. And the, the books of yours, which I've read, have all been set somewhat in protected areas, either the MPA off of the coast of Monterey, the, um, I forget what they called them in South Africa, and then you've got the, the Galapagos Islands, which are very... Um, UNESCO protected area. But first of all, do you want to talk about what the values of these protected areas are, what MPAs mean? And then um, why did you choose to set everything in such kind of perfect and pristine areas? Good question. So most of my career has been spent doing research in and around marine protected areas of various um, 
various sorts, both federal and state and international. Um, and I think one of the things we have to step, I think um, one comment I would make on, on the point you just made is that these are not pristine. Um, they are doing better than they would be probably in the absence of the MPA, but we have a long way to go. I'm a big fan of reprotected areas in which are, is a broad term that couple that captures things like no take marine reserves, marine managed areas, national marine sanctuaries, fisheries closures. There are a variety of different specific categories of spatial management areas that fall into that umbrella of marine protected areas. But I've, um, I've spent, as I said, most of my career working in and out of them and trying to understand how, in my case, mostly fish communities um, respond to the protection and um, prosper as it were, or, you know, or how, how they, how they deal with um, life under that protection and how the areas immediately adjacent to them that continue to be fished are handled. So the, you know, marine protected areas mean very different things all over the world. In some cases they are enforced, well-enforced, have strict regulations and are, um, you know, approximating you know, what we'd like to see in the natural world. In other cases, they exist only on paper and really aren't enforced. And it makes people feel good about themselves to have them on paper, but they really don't result in any substantive protection in the water. So there's a full spectrum and that varies, that varies all over the United States as well as around the world. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that I'm most drawn to about marine protected areas is they really let nature do what nature needs to do. You asked earlier if I've been involved in any cleanups, and I, I really haven't done any, been involved in any kind of cleanups, nor have I been involved in restoration of any kind. And largely because I think from my vantage point, and this is again speaking entirely as a, from my personal uh, position, I'm not comfortable engaging in restoration for the most part because I'm never convinced that I know enough about the ecosystem to engineer it in the way that I think I would need to for restoration. That is not to suggest that I, that I'm not happy about restoration efforts. I'm just saying personally, that's my approach is different. I'm, I really appreciate marine protected areas because you close them off and you let nature do what nature's going to do. And that does mean that you don't always know what you're going to get. And oftentimes you don't get what you were expecting, but it also is somewhat of a natural process that allows um, the ecosystem, if you've cited the MPA well and sized it appropriately and shaped it appropriately, there's a, you know, a, hopefully a good chance that you're going to give the, the ecosystem a chance to recover to some semblance of um, its natural state prior to it, it's being impacted by a variety of things. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Um, I mean, it certainly is an area where there's the issue of trying to engineer a marine protected area, I think does raise a lot of questions of even what would you, how would you do that engineering? Well, in California, we're very fortunate to have a network of 124 marine protected areas um, up and down the state that was the, the product of a long um stakeholder-based process. So the science, the best available science at the time was provided to um, the stakeholders and the stakeholders provided their, and these are you know various users of the marine environment in many cases, um, as well as NGOs trying to represent the organisms that live there. 
And the process resulted in, you know, it wasn't a perfect set of marine protected areas. Perfection is, is an unattainable ideal in this regard, but it was a, it was a, it, it, it existed in the world. And then the state um, very importantly invested in the monitoring of it. And we're, we're now approaching next year, the first decadal review of those marine protected areas. And we've, I've been involved in the deeper water portion, the rocky reefs in the deep water. And, um, you know, it's an interesting story. It's not the same for every marine protected area. So that, you know, the systems, ecosystems don't all respond the same way. And um, it's an interesting and complicated story, but um, it is, uh, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that um, things are happening. And there's some really well-documented documented examples of successful marine protected areas around the world in the literature. Um, so I think... You know, hopefully MPAs aren't going away. And I know one of the latest conversations is introducing the concept out into the open ocean, which is, um, you know, an, an, a new set of complications entirely, given that there's no single authority that controls things out there. And, you know, the animals that live there are often moving. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that all pans out. Oh, definitely. So one of the things you talk about in your book is where you open up the idea is, is ecotourism, especially within marine areas, um, diving to see fish, then perhaps wreck diving or um, shark cave um, diving, shark, not cave, cage diving. What are your views on all of that? Where do you, where do you see the point of, I mean, it seems like if, for people to really care about the ocean, they have to have an experience with it in some way. Um, and it seems like ecotourism is one of those steps toward it. But I'm wondering what your views are on it. Yeah, I think uh, ecotourism is, I think I've participated in a fair amount of ecotourism. And I, so I think it would be uh, insincere to suggest that I, you know, don't like it. I, I've, I've leveraged those opportunities and seen ecosystems that I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I appreciate that opportunity. And I, re I recall vividly my experience in those places. I think the challenge like we face in all cases um, is just the volume of humans we have on the planet. And I know that ecotourism can be done in a way at local, at local scales where you are able to, um, constrain the participants um, on a daily basis, which I think would help because different organisms respond differently to constant um, presence of humans. And humans, even when they're trying really hard, still have an impact on the systems that they visit. So I'm, I think you could count me as an enthusiastic supporter of ecotourism. Um, and I, you know, but I, and I was just, you know, advocating for this at a meeting in our College of Science last week, I think the coupling some scientific research with the ecotourism opportunities is, is a really good chance to have scientists, you know, look at the impacts and look at the frequency of visitation in particular areas and its particular impact on different organisms. So you have nested within the tourism some data collection going on that helps you better um, take care of the ecosystem and perpetuate the tourism. And I should also say that I'm also, um, by virtue of the diaspora that we 
um, educated at CSU Monterey Bay, we have a, a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds. And a lot of them are, for one reason or another, circumstances or other reasons, not able to leverage um, the marine environment in particular. So one of the things we've been doing lately, and it's mentioned a little bit in book three, is virtual reality. So where we take a camera with us to these interesting places and record virtual reality um, video and then um, allow people to quote unquote immerse themselves in some of these places, whether they can visit it or not. And in some cases, it might be a preparatory immersion before you actually visit a place. In other, is others, it may be to visit a place that you know you're never going to go. And in other cases, it might be, hey, I'm going to check this out because I'm definitely going to go there. And I think that, you know, it's probably a small percentage of people who are, you know, viewing the video relative to the people who visit. But um, I think it's another it's another angle is, you know, bringing, making these resources available to people in whatever way they need to experience it. And, you know, in some cases, a virtual visit, though maybe not as satisfying on all levels, is certainly less impactful. So there's a bunch of options we have for moving forward. I mean, as you saw in chapter one of book two in South Africa, there is um, a particularly challenging circumstance that a young man finds himself in. And that's based entirely on um, a trip I did when I was in South Africa. I went down there to work on a subject totally unrelated to white sharks. Um, I was working on the impacts of bottom trawling on the seafloor and how um, South Africa can help. Uh, they were going to design a study to study how the impacts off their western coast um, are panning out. And, but I wasn't going to leave South Africa without going diving at, at false, at, in False Bay at Seal Island, which is some of your readers may or listeners may know that's where the first documentation of air jaws was made, where these white sharks leap out of the water in pursuit of these Cape fur seals. So my colleagues in South Africa weren't 100% enthusiastic about my desire to participate in that process because I think, you know, their average attendee isn't the informed ecotourist. But uh, I went, one of my colleagues from the university other joined me, and I think he had an interesting time. We, we sat in the wheelhouse with the people who were running it on the way out to the island and back and got to chat with them. And uh, it was an experience that was, it was a remarkable I mean, I had experienced white sharks in California many times, but this experience in South Africa was a very different kind of thing. And so what you read in that first chapter of book two is directly based on the experience I had when I was down there back in 2011. Of course, not all of the experience you had, because it was rather gruesome toward the end of that chapter, as I remember. But I just, the idea, my, I can't, I, have, I need to Google it still and look for some of these images. But the idea of something as large as even a small shark propelling itself out of the water like that, just the image of it is incredible. I'm not sure I really want to see it because in my mind, it's it's so fantastic anyway. It's um it's quite an experience. And I think, and I mean, I, you know, I've seen them underwater and I've seen them at the surface and but it wasn't until I went to South Africa that I'd been on board a boat and was splashed in the face by, but resulting from a white shark having leapt out of the water immediately adjacent to the boat. You haven't really lived <laughs> <laughs> until you've been splashed in the face by a frolicking white shark. So, you know, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds as it were, but you know, the, the interesting thing about Seal Island is that there is a, a, one side of it is very deep 
and it's like a, a, a sheer drop off of the shelf underwater and it, it goes tens of meters deep. And so the white sharks that prey from below are watching the seals come and go from the island and they can ramp up and get going like 26 miles per an hour by the time they reach the surface. And so, you know, they strike the seal and their momentum carries them out of the water, sometimes so far that they flip in the air and then land back in the water. It's, it's, it's crazy. Wow. So one of the things you mentioned in South Africa is they have a, a series of, of shark risk flags that they set up. Is that something you made up in the book or is that something that really exists? Oh, that really exists. It's, um, I was, you know, as many, since I started writing the books, wherever I go in the world, I'm oftentimes taking notes in between. And I sat right in front of the sign um, that Chris Black refers to, and it really exists. This is the color coding, at least in 2011, that's what the sign looked like. The color coding is, um, is designed to reflect the amount of danger. And um, it, I remember thinking, wow, if it gets to um, this color, I think it's time to run. And, you know, there were stories that like the day before I was sitting at a beach eating a croissant with my South African colleagues. And the day before a white shark had been um, spotted in three feet of water at that beach, which um, is, you know, they, they, they come inshore, they feed on the, the mammals out at um, Seal Island. And oftentimes, sometimes either they switch prey to fish and that will bring them closer to shore. So it's not like there's, there's, they were just pursuing prey. And most of the time that results in no concern whatsoever, but it does bring them in close to, closer to shore. And so there are, there are um, lots of people employed that I saw at a single beach uh, keeping an eye out for white sharks and the flag system allow, alerts everybody. Wow. Is that been used anywhere in the U S um, I not, I'm not, I'm not seeing a system like that. I mean, I live in the middle of what is, referred to as the red triangle in California. And we certainly don't have any such system at any of the beaches I've seen. Um, so I think, you know, a, co a close colleague of mine from Southern California um, has been working uh, throughout the Southern California bite and tracking their, tracking white sharks, juvenile white sharks, adult white sharks, looking, tracking their movements and working very closely with the municipalities and the lifeguard communities um, down there. And I think, he, at least in the United States, to the extent that I'm aware, is making one of the most direct connections to the people who might be in charge of um, helping manage human interaction with the white sharks. But I think, you know, the, the message that I take from all of this is that there are, um, you know, if you, the, the ubiquity of drones now is you fly a drone over in Southern California and you see, you know, surfer, surfer, shark, shark, surfer, paddleboarder, shark, shark, <laughs> surfer, surfer, swimmer. Oh, and yes. oftentimes nobody is aware of the shark's presence. So if, if the drone weren't there, nobody would know it would happen. And that probably describes the vast majority of shark quote unquote interactions with people. It's a non-event. It, non They're just there and we're there and everything goes fine. You know, obviously it doesn't go fine all the time. And I've been close to some of those situations, but it, um, you know, the, the message far and away is that, you know, most of the time you're not going to see one. And I, I, you know, I live up here and I've done several thousand dives in my lifetime. And I have colleagues who've done 
twice as many dives as I have in the Monterey Bay area, and they've never seen a white shark, not a single time. So it's it, that always strikes me as extraordinary because if anybody would, you'd expect people who spend all their time underwater, but it's still it's still pretty rare, um, which is pretty interesting. It, it is, and it's um, I think with some of the activities we're taking towards sharks, we're making it more difficult for them to be around too. So, oh, definitely, it's um. Again, it's a situation where, and you know, marine protected areas aren't always the best to circle back. They're not the best means for protecting sharks or, or many sharks because the sharks move so frequently. But if you can scale the MPAs to predict areas, like you know, the highest concentration of sharks in the world is in the Galapagos, and to making the Galapagos a national park and superimposing some other UN-based protections, and there's a new marine protected area being designated down there right now. Um, that certainly can't hurt, hurt. And have you been up diving at, at Darwin and Wolf Island? I have. Um, it was extraordinary. And my colleagues, my two colleagues and I were the only people on the boat who weren't looking at sharks. I mean, we were interested in them, but we were looking at fishes, reef fishes down below. Nobody could understand why we traveled that far to look at dumb little fishes when there was so much else around. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, we were able to see a bunch of sharks and I actually was able to dive and, um, adjacent to a whale shark with a VR camera. And that was pretty neat. Um, so there's a video on one of our websites that, you know, you can experience diving with a whale shark in the Galapagos virtually. Um, it's an extraordinary place. It was my second trip back and I'm very hopeful to go back. COVID kind of interrupted our, our plans as, you know, did everybody's, um, but I'm hopeful to get back there sometime soon. Well, good luck on that one. Yes. But in my, in my sort of tagging all of your books with a, a byline of Into the Canyon Deep, as I said, was your dumping one, um, Blood Cold, while there's a lot of sharks in there, I did look at it as, um, oh, wreck diving and, and sort of that trying to recover doing salvage work. Um, the most recent one that I'm reading, Dead Men's Silence, is been key coded for me as pirates. So um, have you had any experience with piracy in the open sea? So I have, fortunately I have not. Um, most of my research, in fact, pretty much all of it occurs very close to land. So I'm, I've not encountered pirates to date, but we have um, had speakers come to campus to talk about the global effort with respect to piracy. And, you know, we had one speaker in particular that showed us a counter that is counting the global incidence of piracy and it's ticking off very quickly. If you Google it, you can find the, you know, the piracy counter and you will see that it's, it's changing constantly. And not unlike um, the unfortunate real world examples of dumping, it wasn't long after I finished the first draft of book three with deals with pirates from Columbia that, um, some spectacular examples of piracy in the Southern Caribbean were showing up. So it's definitely happening still um, in a very real way. And, and we had a speaker from the Naval Postgraduate School here in Monterey come speak to us several years ago. And, you know, the military is tracking these things too. So piracy is definitely happening. And it seemed like out of the Galapagos, which is in many cases, particularly the islands, Wolf and Darwin, as you mentioned, that are far off from the main islands and further away from the mainland of South America, 
are um, would be a place you'd be vulnerable. And so pirates were the main antagonist for that third book. And, um, you know, as I say, zaniness ensues. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think I'm right. I, I have often facts that are, are true in my own mind, but they may not be true for the reality of the world. But that Lloyd's of London got started because it was in providing insurance for the shipping industry. Because even back then, the shipping was so dangerous, either through piracy or just through storms and damage, that no company could individually account for all those losses. And it was from that that we got all of the current day insurance that is so now prevalent around, but that it was the shipping industry that started us on that pathway. That sounds, um, I, I feel like I've read that before. So that does sound, um, you know, either we're sharing the same dubious facts or we both touched <laughs> on something that is, is, is real. And it, that, that does sound like something that would have happened. And, you know, there is a lot, I've spent enough time on vessels at sea to know that a lot of things can happen. And as I mentioned, I've been fortunate enough not to occur encounter pirates, but, you know, if you've read, um, the beginning of book three, which it sounds like you have, there's also an incident with eco terrorists in the first um, chapter or the second chapter that that's actually found in a reality. And in that case, it didn't happen to me, but it happened to a colleague. So they were in sight of land doing research and were boarded by eco terrorists, you know, and so that happens. That's not exactly piracy, but you're never, you never entirely clear of threats out there. And um, every time we enter the water, we have to think about that. And um, that is also kind of the foundation of some of these books and kind of exploring what the, ch what, you know, the challenges would be if we were encountering more than just bad weather and sometimes um, dangerous animals, but also dangerous people on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just in a webinar today on dune restoration and with that, somewhat going back to what you're talking about with marine protected areas, the idea of how much do you let alone and just kind of um, fence off so that nature can start to restore those areas or how much do you actively manage and plant them and provide the, the, the substrate for those dune areas. And then talking about how to make more people appreciate these areas and understand them and, and care about them. And that goes, that's true. A question to ask for, how do you make people care about the coast in general or care about the oceans that are there? And a lot of our discussion this morning went toward the need for inclusion and bringing more and more people to the coast, providing more and more awareness of what's going on, the importance and the, the wonderfulness of these areas. But in your book three, I did get as far as where you started to touch on inclusion for research, where you talk about the idea that with out on a research vessel where it's so expensive to get people out and it's so much, <clears throat> I mean, it's so expensive to have anyone on board and that of the 18 researchers who were invited to be on this, only eight were divers and the other 10 were expecting those eight to go out and get information and provide them with things so that they could, they could experience it, but, but not actually be in the water because they weren't certified divers. And it 
it got me thinking, I haven't gotten anywhere in my thought process, but to ask the question, what do you, where do you think is a appropriate role or balance for that idea of inclusion and, and going from the discipline of what I grew up with of being STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, to now a STEAM-based curriculum with the arts in it? And is that a are we moving in the right direction, or where do you, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. You can dodge as much as you want. Okay. Um, what was the question? Oh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think. Well, you've there's a lot to unpack there, and certainly I am a huge fan of inclusion. And as I mentioned, to the extent that we're also adopting virtual reality to try to include as many possible people as we can in as many ways as we can. Um, and I, so I, I'm a huge fan of inclusion. And I think, you know, there is an old adage, I think it was Baba Dioum who talked about, you know, people know, love, I can't repeat it, but they love what they protect or they protect what they love and they have to love what they know or, you know, somebody could Google it and figure it out. But the idea that, you know, it's much easier to enthusiastically support protection if you have a direct visceral connection with things, I think. And so the more inclusive we can be and, you know, in a, in a modern context in the United States, inclusive in the, for, for communities that historically don't have the opportunity to engage in these ecosystems, there's no downside to that as far as I'm concerned, as subject to doing it in an appropriate way that we were talking about earlier, where you're not overwhelming the ecosystems, there is zero downside to being as inclusive as we could possibly be. Um, every, you know, everybody deserves an experience. I mean, the ocean has been the defining um, element in my life from my earliest moments on the planet. And the notion, and I, I could see in students that I have, some of them respond directly to the types of things that I talk about because I'm, I realize I'm trying to engage students who've had the same experience as me, but so many of them increasingly haven't. That I've really had to realize that, you know, the things, the buttons that I push to get people excited don't always work nearly as well as they used to because so many of our students that people we're working with have just fundamentally have not had the good fortune to experience the marine environment in the way that I have had. So the challenge then is to is to figure out new ways to engage them and you know just facilitate their experience. And this I think is somewhat analogous. This is maybe this is a reach, but there's an analogy there to the restoration versus marine protection type thing. And you know, one option would be for me to bring them to the marine environment and, you know, expose them to the environment in exactly the same way that I experienced it myself and expect them to have kind of the same experience as me. The alternative route is to bring them there, you know, they may take away messages that are, or, or sentiments or experiences that are completely different than my own. But as long as it's derived from direct experience, you know, who cares? It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's more exciting to have them experience in their own way. And who knows where that will take us? Um, you know, we were speaking earlier about the um, interesting paths that our new, our current generation of, I guess, millennials, or maybe maybe they're um, not millennials anymore. I may have lost track, but um, they're going to take us in interesting places. And that's going to derive from a lot of their experience. So how we can, the more we can show them the marine environment, I think the better off we'll all be. How's that for some toxic positivity there? <laughs> no, I think that's great. And I think we're about three generations past millennials. Oh, man. So I'm but, sorry. Whatever you know, we've got. But I, I'm, not, I'm not so good on that either. But 
Um, what's next for you with um, Chris Black and or your research? So for Chris Black, um, Chris Black's does survive book three. <laughs> I'm going to, there's a spoiler. Chris, Chris Black <laughs> survives book three, the one you're reading now in the Galapagos. And um, um, the next book um, takes place in the Red Sea, the Northern Red Sea off the coast of Israel and uh, in a, off of Eilat, which is actually, it's off the coast of Israel, but it's also immediately adjacent to Egypt and Jordan. And the, the plot derives from some experience I've had. Um, I've had the good fortune to, to participate either underwater or from the surface in six missions to the Aquarius Undersea Laboratory in the Florida Keys, where you go and live underwater for 10 days at a time without going to the surface. And you dive, you can dive up to eight hours a day and the science you can conduct there is extraordinary. And you know, from my first mission, which actually happened, started at 8.30 a.m., on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. So we started 15 minutes before the planes hit the World Trade Center. We started our first mission. And um, so from my first mission, I was trying to strategize on how to get um, saturation habitat into one of Chris Black's books. And um, I think I came upon a solution. And years ago, I was approached by people from the BBC who were talking about, you know, developing uh, an undersea habitat that would be containerized and flown around the world to do and deployed in different locations for, you know, study and then move to someplace else. So I imagined for book four, which is tentatively titled Red Sea, a situation in which such a habitat is deployed in a lot and is run as part of an international mission jointly operated by Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. And um, as you can imagine, there's um, the logistical hassles of doing the challenges of doing that would be considerable, but then the political challenges um, would be possibly exceed that. And <laughs> Unfortunately, surprise, surprise, yes. zaniness ensues. So it's an opportunity. And Chris, you know, he also has some experiences further up the coast, which I was the good fortune to dive on the Mediterranean coast with of Israel a couple different times and um, diving in the vicinity of. Uh, like sunken walls built by crusaders and that, you know, and the history is absolutely incredible. I mean, the history on land in Israel is mind blowing. And, uh, and I say that as a non-religious person is absolutely mind blowing. And to um, this, the history underwater is equivalently mind blowing. And so Chris gets to dabble in a little bit of that, but the majority of the book takes place in um, down in the Red Sea. So that's next for Chris, and that book is on. Um, it's it's submitted to the publisher. It's been accepted. Edit, editing begins in mid January, twenty twenty two, and um, but it probably won't be on the shelves or available online until um, May of twenty three. So that's giving me a chance to start on book five, which is going to bring Chris back. Um, spoiler alert: He does survive book um, four. <laughs> And um, he will be coming back to California where um, somebody who bears him ill will will be making life difficult for Chris and his team. And it takes place to some extent, again, in the vicinity of Carmel and Monterey, but also down into the Big Sur coastline, which is a coastline that people travel all over the world to come and visit. Um, so there will be some there'll be some notable landmarks 
um, from the Big Sur area included in the book. And unlike Chris Black, most of, some of those landmarks may not survive the telling. It'll we'll see. <laughs> oh, uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> wow. And what's next for you personally? Well, um, we've been very fortunate to keep research going throughout the pandemic by virtue primarily of the living next to this extraordinary living laboratory of the Monterey Bay. Uh, my research divers and I, were, were we, we worked on getting approvals and we're diving from June of 2020 onward um, in, in protocols that were approved by the university and, and, and safe as safe can be um, with respect to COVID. So we've been diving continuously and we were able to, in the last um, eight months, branch out and do some work down further south, a project down off San Clemente Island um, in Southern California, which is an island that's owned by the Navy. And um, the next step is um, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I've been talking to colleagues about a return to Israel um, sometime in the spring for a project there. Of course, the day after we um, had our last meeting, Israel announced it was closing its borders to all travelers for at least 14 days due to the Omicron variant. Um, so it, it's, you know, I, we all have heard the 14 day closure idea before. <laughs> Rarely really does it last 14 days. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Uh, I have a colleague at Cocos Island right now. I wasn't able to go with him because, uh, which is off the coast of Costa Rica, this trip because of um, the finishing of the semester, but Cocos Island is on the horizon. Uh, I'm hopeful that this project up off Washington State will, we, it had to be postponed this past summer, and we're hopeful that that will be happening off the Olympic Peninsula. And I actually have a student um, here on campus in our research diving class participating. She's from Iceland. And we're going to be doing an independent study down here off Monastery Beach in Carmel um, in the spring that will hopefully result in a comparative study. Um, sorry about that, if you can hear. If you're... I think you've got a companion for that trip, at least. Yeah, he's, um, he's a pandemic wonder dog. Um, we have uh, we may be doing a similar study in Iceland when she returns, so that may be an opportunity to go to Iceland where I've never been. So that's exciting. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot of things going, and we're all just kind of in a holding pattern to see how things um, pan out with the pandemic. As a as everyone is, but um, yeah, I was supposed to go to Iceland back in July, no May of twenty twenty. And so that was one of my bucket lists that is now um, still sitting in the bottom of the bucket, unfortunately. <clears throat> so did you have to did you have to cancel it outright, or is there an opportunity to revisit those plans? Um, it, it, it's canceled outright, and hope to go eventually again or get it started again. But it's one of those countries. It's just an amazing place that I wanted to visit and go see some of the volcanoes in that area, but. On to you again, not me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So who were who were some of your favorite writers? What was some of your inspiration as you were uh, growing up? And um, who provided your inspiration? Uh, great question. Um, so I've read a lot and uh, a lot of different kinds of books. And um, But my mom got me started. She, and the, the first book is dedicated to her. Um, and 
because she started me off on Robert Ludlum books much earlier than any young child should be reading Robert Ludlum. So I started reading spy thrillers when I was in elementary school and really found those compelling. And um, I also, so I read spy thrillers. I've read a lot of legal thrillers, many of the same ones we all read, you know, I've read a lot of John Grisham, I've read Scott Turow. Um, I've read some police procedurals and, um, you know, some medical thrillers. And so I read all those as long as well as, you know, I'm a huge Tolkien fiend. Um, having a daughter in the world, I've read um, all the Harry Potter books multiple times, of course, as well as the Percy Jackson series and all those. Um, so it's kind of all over the map. Um, and we also make an effort to read um, my daughter and I, To Kill a Mockingbird, pretty much once a year, which is pretty much my favorite book of all time. But to get to your point, one of the things that really fascinates me, um, so I'm a huge fan of this author named John Sanford, who writes books about, um, they're basically police procedural stories from up in Minnesota. I've, I've only been to Minnesota once, and none of it takes place. They're not marine themed at all. But there's, I think, now upwards of 30 novels where you get to see the team and develop over time over multiple stories. And I've always been fascinated by that. So one of the things that I'm hopeful is that Chris Black's, um, Chris Brack and his team have the opportunity to experience a number of different adventures. And you can see how the, how the group evolves. Uh, I should also say that um, for readers who are interested in Marine stuff, I was a huge fan of Clive Cussler. And uh, I was extremely fortunate enough to have lunch with him here in Monterey um, a couple of years before he passed away. And that was really fun. And so to whisper at him at the end of lunch that, hey, I've also written a novel. <laughs> and um, that, was, that, that was pretty fun. And um, so I think, you know, to circle back to one of your original questions, you know, the audience for those books is the same type of audience I'm thinking about. You know, these are the, these are really engaging, fun reads um, you know, I've also read a lot of hard reads, like, you know, I've read Russian literature, I've, you know, I've read a lot of James Joyce, you know, I've been there and done that with, you know, the hard stuff that's really satisfying on multiple levels, but there's something fun about a quick, rapid paced read that do interesting things in fun places. And so the, the readers that I, the, the authors, I read a lot of those. Well, I mean, other than Clive Cussler, I'm a little disappointed that you don't have many coastal reads in here, but. I guess that's that's because your your world is so involved with that um, for your nine to five, which is never a nine to five job that that you look for escape elsewhere. That's a great point. And yes, I am. Um, I'm probably not a great consumer of coastal literature in many cases because I don't think I'm oftentimes the and that's also true of documentaries. You know, I'm sure you've seen my octopus teacher and some of those um, types of streaming content, or many of your listeners have, and I have too. Um, and they didn't, to be perfectly honest, yeah, I wasn't, I, w I don't feel I was the audience for that um, because the audience is, you know, I, I think much of that is intended to reach an audience like we've been talking earlier of people who don't have that much experience with the ecosystems. And so I'm, um, I am not an active consumer of marine themed um, literature outside of Clive Custer and a couple others, because uh, I think I'm living that, as you say, it's not a nine to five job. It could be 24 seven if you didn't dial it back. So I'm a, a consumer of that kind of content and experience every single day. So I look elsewhere for um, 
some of my experiences. And that again gets back to another reason why I wanted to write these novels, because as I've traveled the world talking to people, oh, you know, invariably I'm approached by people who say, oh, I always wanted to be a marine, marine biologist, but dot, 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 you know, something happened. So I think there's this natural audience um, of people who love marine science enough. They have this image of what it's like to be a marine scientist to think it's really cool without having delved into the fact that they have to do all this calculus and chemistry and physics and all that good stuff to actually become a practicing scientist. Um, so I think what I've been trying to do is leverage that and take a lesson from some of the authors that I read who write legal thrillers and police procedurals and medical thrillers. You know, you don't browbeat them with, you know, a, a, you know, I almost went to law school and a legal thriller would not be thrilling if it really delved into the the procedural fun of being a lawyer, <laughs> that would not be a good read. And so I think what, what you have to do is dangle um, enough to make the reader feel like they're in the place that, you know, that they're experiencing it and that they've taken away something from it. And, you know, all the authors that I just listed do that for me in a variety of other contexts. And I guess, you know, with the primary goal being a good story, I also am hoping that people come away from my novels with a better sense of what it's like to dive in a canyon or to go to South Africa or to dive in the Galapagos. I, I think you have done that for your readers. But I am going to bring you right back to the coast again for one or two more questions. So what's your favorite beach or favorite shoreline? So hands down, and this is true. Well, there's, okay. That's a, that's, that's possibly a more complicated question than, than you can imagine. Um, so I grew up down on this on, um, outside of San Luis Obispo. And so the shoreline around Morro rock, which the Gibraltar of the Pacific, this big rocky volcanic cap that sits out there is, um, will always be my preferred shoreline. My, I can feel my heart rate and my blood pressure decline every time I'm in the presence of Morro rock. Um, that said, Long before I moved to Carmel or in Monterey, um, a place called Monastery Beach in Southern Carmel Bay was my favorite dive site in the world. And it is still my favorite dive site in the world. I have dove it hundreds of times now and I absolutely love it. It is extraordinary. Um, and, you know, we didn't dive it this morning. We dove somewhere else, but there, you know, within the next week and a half, I moved back there. So, and then my, the, my newest favorite dive is in the Galapagos. There's an island um, one of the main islands, uh, San Cristobal, is where oftentimes you fly in. It's the first island that um, Charles Darwin stepped foot onto. Um, and, you know, my daughter and I got to dive there several years ago and dive. We, we sat on the bottom and looked up basically in the, in the area where the beagle anchored for his first step onto the islands, which is pretty incredible. But right offshore there, there's a... Um, um, a smaller island called Kicker Rock, also um, for it looks like a sleeping lion, so I think it's called Leon Dormido, um, Leon Dormido, and the it's the hands down so the like the back chunk of the island split off, so there's a channel that's a couple hundred meters wide, with sheer face down like fifty you know thirty to fifty meters deep, and this channel is just full of life as it swims back and forth, and so you can dive there. And sharks are going through and sea turtles are going through and huge, huge um, bait balls are going through and marine mammals are swimming around. It's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, that's my newest favorite dive site. 
it's always good to have next new favorites to look forward to. <clears throat> so um, anything more you want to say about your books or anything in closing? Well, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come speak to you and to your listeners. Um, I say, you know, for anybody who's interested in this, who's, who's heard this stuff and isn't running away fast in the other direction, <laughs> I, I hope you have an opportunity to check in on the books. They're each designed to be standalone, but if you read them in order, I think you'll have a fuller narrative experience. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm hopeful that books four will be on the shelves in about a year and a half with book five following within a year after that. And um, unless something changes, I'm you know going to keep producing them if people are still willing to read them. And uh, you know, also I have a website um, and I'm happy to receive feedback or questions or anything via that website. Um, there's a place to submit your information. And uh, I love hearing from readers and it's fun to see their experiences with the books because they're not always the experiences I would expect them to have. So please reach out to me. I love to chat with people. Great. I must say that when I finished my dissertation, the next thing I thought about doing was not to write a book. I felt like I had already written more than enough for the rest of my life. So I'm in awe that you would take that on as your next undertaking the day after. <laughs> but thank you for doing so. Well, thank you. It's, um, yeah, it, it is not exactly the most um, intelligent move for somebody who's already too busy, but uh, you know, intelligence is overrated and it's a lot of fun, so I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> So thank you, James. Thank you for being on Shorewards today. And thank you, listeners, for your attention. And I hope you've enjoyed this time with James Lindholm and, and all of his books. And more to the point, the, the marine biology and, and travels of the world and to the oceans that he's done that so well informed his book. And I'll be back next month with another episode of Shorewards. Hope you will enjoy it then. Join us then. I hope you will enjoy it as well. Goodbye. Thanks. Thanks.